Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. There's a parable of Jesus. And this is the word of God. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we believe those truths that we just sang, that we can't do anything apart from you, that it's not in our effort, but it's you working in our hearts, in our lives, and in our minds, that we can follow you, that we can trust in you, that we can obey you, and that we can actually walk the path of discipleship you call us to. And we believe that to be true. And we also believe that it's useless that we're here if you don't work among us, if you don't send your spirit to us. So we ask that you would do that now and that you would teach us as our teacher and our savior and our Lord. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, I want to ask you a question this morning and that's what's the most shocking news you've ever heard? Or maybe the most shocking news you've ever seen? As immediately as I say that, probably some event or some life circumstance pops into your head. Maybe you're thinking of like when your first child was born and that was really shocking to you because, oh my goodness, what are labor pains? This is pretty crazy. (laughs) This seems really painful. Or maybe for some of you, it's, you know, major events. I think of one in my life particularly. I was about 12 years old. I, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but my brother came running upstairs because he had just woken up and his alarm clock gave him some alarming news. So he came running upstairs. I was in my mom and dad's room and we were folding laundry, my mom and I. And my brother comes up and says, I just heard on the news that the Empire State Building had a bomb explode in it. And my mom and I were just really dumbfounded. Like, what what is he talking about? And he's like, yeah, I just heard it on the news. Let's look at the, let's look on the TV and see what actually happened. So we flipped on the TV and it was a Tuesday morning. It was around seven o'clock in the morning or so. And it wasn't the Empire State Building that had had a bomb go off in it. That was definitely some misinformation, some fake news. But what had really happened was a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And I remember thinking, as I was looking at that, that this must be a joke. Like, this, there's no way that this could actually be happening. And this can't be happening. Is, is what I'm seeing and hearing true? So that was one such instance. A little bit later on in my life, I was watching TV, and uh, my brother gave me a call. And he said, hey, flip on to Channel 4 on the news. And so I did. And it was a story of one of my good friends who was a high school friend of mine who had died in a car accident. And there was a picture of his mom standing at the intersection where the car had crashed and she was just weeping and crying. And I remember in that moment, I knew exactly where I was. I knew exactly what I felt. 
And it was an immense shock to my system. Do you have moments like that? I bet for some of you this morning, if I say just, the, just this date, okay, these, these memories and these feelings will come up for you. December 7th, 1941. Some of you hear that. And immediately, you know where you were, who you were with, and what you felt like in that moment. All right, so Gen Z people and millennials, that is Pearl Harbor, just so you know, okay? It's Pearl Harbor. Or for others if you, of you, if I say, the president has been shot, you remember exactly what you were wearing. You remember exactly what you were doing. You remember that moment, don't you? Again, Gen Z, millennials, that's the John F. Kennedy assassination, Okay. And I thought, I tried to think of one that only Gen Z would come up with, but I'm an old soul. So I was like, ah, okay, whatever. I guess I'm not going to go for it. I mentioned that for this reason. We're in week three of our parables of Jesus. This is the third week that we've been looking at some of Jesus' parables. And I hope you've seen that Jesus meant these parables to be shocking. He meant them to actually challenge us. He meant for them to move us to action and make us reflect on not only who he is and what he's done, but on who we are and what we are doing. In other words, the parables of Jesus are very life transformative and they are shocking. They are not like one commentator. So I I was reading some commentaries on the parables and one commentator said parables are this. Parables are merely real life stories from which one or possibly a few basic truths are drawn. I read that and I thought, what parables are you reading? <laughs> that, that, that makes the parable sound about as intimidating as a box of kittens. That is not what the parables of Jesus are. Jesus' parables are supposed to be more like smelling salts, right? They bring you awake from a slumber and they force you to listen. And now you'll remember week one that we set some ground rules. We, the first thing that we said is parables are, not, are meant to be personal. Parables are meant to be personal. They're meant to be like a mirror, right? We're supposed to see ourselves in them. So that means if you're listening to these parables and your mind immediately goes to the person next to you or to somebody who, quote, really needs to hear it, then you're not hearing it correctly, okay? You're not hearing it correctly. The second thing is that parables are meant to be present, which is another way of saying that Jesus means these parables to get into your DNA, into your bloodstream now, today, not to think, oh, I remember when I used to think that, but I've matured since. No, they're meant to shock you today and make you reflect on them in your life now. And Jesus delivers in this section that we just read in Luke 14, I think are probably the two most shocking statements and then the two most shocking parables that he ever delivers. And we don't really see that in those parables because they, they oftentimes we just glance over them. But I, I want to really focus in on those parables today. But what Jesus does is he delivers two shocking statements in verses 26 and 27. And then he delivers two shocking parables in verses 28 through 32. And he closes with a summary statement in verse 33. So let's begin. Let's look at these two shocking statements that Jesus begins with. And in verse 25, beginning there, we see again that Jesus, like many of his other parables, he's speaking to the crowd. So as Jesus is walking in front of this crowd, we know uh, from earlier in Luke's narrative that uh, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And at this point, he turns around and addresses the crowds and he gives two shocking statements. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what is Jesus saying here? 
Well, in order to understand that, I think it's really important that we understand what Jesus is not saying. So Jesus is not saying that we are to literally hate our family members. Okay, he's not literally saying that we're to hate our family members because we know in other places in scripture, Jesus commands that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we honor our father and mother. So he can't mean that. So Jesus is not saying that we can literally hate our family members, which means you can't use this verse in a fight with your spouse. Okay, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Jesus, Hannah says to me, why are you acting like such a jerk today? You know, why are you treating us this way? I said, well, have you ever read Luke 14, verse 26? (laughs) My devotion is to Jesus, right? You can't do that, all right? So what is Jesus doing here then? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's being hyperbolic. He's using hyperbole. What he's doing is he's trying to shock the crowds, use shocking language to get the crowd's attention because Jesus realizes that though there's great crowds accompanying him, many people accompanying him. He's the most popular preacher in town. He realizes that many of the people in the crowd are still missing the point. They're still missing the point of what Jesus came to do and what his call on their life was for. So my uh, birthday was just a couple weeks ago and we went to the zoo. And when you walk into the Denver Zoo, the first, uh, the first uh, cage of animals is the lions. And it's really cool uh, compared to other zoos that I've been at, the Denver Zoo, they really cram the lions forward. So there were two adult male lions sitting on a rock, you know, no higher than 10 feet off the ground and no further away than about 10 yards. And there's these two male adult lions, crowds are looking at these lions. And I mean, they're massive. And one of them starts roaring and everybody's kind of scared and pulling back. Meanwhile, my daughter Lainey is looking over to the right over here and we're kind of curious. We're like, Lainey, what are you doing? She's like, look, there's a squirrel over there. <laughs> Lainey, look, there's lions right there. She's like, look, it's got a bushy tail, you know? And that's pretty funny, but that's a really good illustration of some of the people in the crowd that are following Jesus. See, though they're following Jesus with their feet, they're actually literally following Jesus with their feet. In their hearts, Jesus realizes that they're missing the point of what it actually means to follow him. And, and we know that based on looking at other reasons that people were following Jesus that we see in other gospel accounts. In John chapter six, Jesus stares at many of the people who are following him and say, hey, I realize that the reason you're following me is simply because you want bread. You want me to feed you. You remember in Jesus's ministry, there was a time when he fed thousands by just a few loaves of bread. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not wrong to want bread, but that's not the reason for following me. In other places, we see people just wanted to witness Jesus's miracles and healings. They wanted to come and they wanted to see a spectacle. They wanted to see Jesus do amazing things because they had never seen amazing things like that before. They wanted to see his mighty acts. And others we know, they they actually wanted to test Jesus and accuse him. There's a lot of his opponents. Many people were in the crowd, and maybe this is like some of you here today. You want to come here and you want to kind of deliberate on what Jesus says and you want to find contradictions in what he says so it can justify unbelief. Well, that was very true in Jesus' time too, that people wanted to follow Jesus and see if he wanted to do or if he was going to do something illegal so they could arrest him or say something falsely so that they could discredit him as a teacher. But Luke makes it clear what Jesus came to do. Luke makes it extremely clear on what Jesus came to do. And and we see it a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 9. Jesus was talking to his disciples one time after they had finally realized that he was the Messiah, the chosen person that God would send to save his people. And he said this, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, 
the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And just in case they didn't get it, Jesus tells them a second time, just a little bit further. He says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciple, disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And I love what verse 45 says, But they did not understand this saying. <laughs> so they don't get it. That's what we should put on our church sign outside, by, by the way. And they didn't understand what he was saying. That'd be pretty nice. That might attract some people. So they don't get it. Not even his closest followers get it at times. But we got to give him credit, though. Let's give him credit because Jesus says in these verses that he's the son of man, which is another way of saying that he is the promised prophet who would come and liberate God's people. And this was people, the, the, the son of man was the Messiah that people were hoping for. And here Jesus is saying, I am that prophetic fulfillment and I am going to Jerusalem, but I'm not going in order to conquer with a sword or to ascend a throne to rule, but I'm going to take up a cross and die to lay down my life for the forgiveness of sins. I am not the conquering king who you think I am, who came in order to crush my enemies. I am going to Jerusalem to be the crucified king who came to die for my enemies. Unless any of us should really want to know what Jesus was about, that is his central message, that he came to die, to lay down his life for his enemies, people like you and me. So Jesus here uses hyperbole. He puts a smelling salt before the crowd in order to shake them and say, do you realize what following me is about? Do you actually realize what this is going to entail? To be my follower means your life as you live it now will be radically different. If you follow me, it is going to be a complete reversal, a complete 180 degree turn from the direction that you are living your life right now from the direction that I am calling you to live your life. A 180 degree turn, not a 90 degree turn. Not a 175 degree turn, but a complete turnaround. Following me to the cross means your life will then begin to look like the cross. So seven years uh, ago, I was, fine, I was married. So I've been married to Hannah now for seven years. We just celebrated our anniversary in August. And it's amazing that when you live and walk with and kind of do life with somebody for so, so long, you begin to become like that person. Many of you who are married, you probably realize this, that you become like your spouse in certain ways. And it starts out as small things. Like I used to never close the shower curtain after I was done taking a shower. So, you know, my shower curtain would be all moldy. And Hannah finally told me, yeah, I don't like cleaning up your mold. So if you could please close the shower curtain, that'd be nice. So I started doing that. I started folding blankets instead of just crumpling them up and throwing them back on the, on the bed. I stopped watching Seinfeld and started watching Friends. I'm s- I think I lost on that one by the way. But then there's big things, right? I've be, I become an extremely organized person. My wife is type A plus, okay? Like she has lists about making lists. That's how organized she is. My wife actually one time she had a list and the first thing was wake up on it. So she woke up, it's like, uh-huh, check. All right, I did it. You know? And I become a little bit like that. And then like cars too. I used to have an Isuzu rodeo. I mean, that thing was sweet. Like the door didn't work, you know? I couldn't roll down the window. It was awesome. Like it had no AC, no heater. It was, it was the greatest car ever. And then Hannah, you know, now I find myself saying, you know, I'm so glad we got a Honda Odyssey minivan. <laughs> it's awesome. I love this thing. 
And it's fascinating, right? The more you're with somebody, the more you follow somebody, the more you walk through life with somebody, you become more like that person. And it's fascinating because Jesus uses this hyperbole here to drive home that same point that in order to be his disciple and to follow him means your life as you live it now will change to be more like Jesus. It will become radically different if you follow him. And, and, and if I could maybe give you a principle that Jesus is trying to, to, to lay on us here, it is this, that Jesus is telling you and me, all of us, and anybody who cares to listen, that he wants all of you, not just part of you. That's what Jesus is getting at here, that he wants all of you, not just part of you. If you follow Jesus, it means you will follow him with your life and every part of your life. One of my favorite authors, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and I think she puts it perfectly. She says, if anyone doesn't know Jesus, it is crucial that they know this one thing, that Jesus comes to you to exchange the life you once lived, not to be an addition to it. And I think that's why Jesus uses such shocking language in verse 26, right? In verse 26, he says, not only that you have to hate father and mother, although that's shocking too, but I think the most shocking thing that Jesus says is that you have to hate even your own life. And if you do not do that, you cannot be his disciple. Your whole life is required of you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not just gonna be one relationship among many. I am going to be the relationship of your life and our relationship will be foundational. It's going to be a foundational relationship upon which you build every other element of your life. Now, you guys remember the food pyramid? I know they don't do this anymore. They do the food plate, which I think is a terrible loss. But remember the food pyramid. But the idea of the food pyramid was simple, right? You need the most of the thing on the bottom. It's foundational. You need six servings of grain a day. Otherwise, the top of the pyramid, it just makes no sense. You need those six things of grain. Now, by the way, that food pyramid was set by the United States Department of Agriculture. I think they had an agenda in that. I don't know if you need six servings of grain a day. But anyway, the point is clear, right? You need this. This is foundational. If you don't get this, then it's useless to have the rest of the top. Jesus is saying us as human beings were created to follow and build our lives on God, on Jesus. It is the primary relationship, the foundational relationship that you were created for. And I want to get really practical here, okay? So just some practical applications of this. By way of application, positively, positively, this is what it means. It means as disciples of Jesus, we build our lives on him as the greatest joy in our life. Now you think about that. What gives you joy? Can you say Jesus is the greatest joy in my life? More than the Denver Broncos, which is good because the Broncos will always disappoint, okay? <laughs> More than your job and your career, which again, that will disappoint. Is Jesus your greatest joy? It'll mean we're going to start saying things like, or, or we're going to, as Jesus is the foundation, it means serving him becomes your greatest mission in life. Honoring him becomes the central focus of your life. Pleasing him and knowing him become the greatest goals in your life. And you start saying things like, you know, what would Jesus have me do with my Sunday mornings? I mean, it's just a Sunday morning. It's just a normal everyday thing. But what would Jesus have me do with a Sunday morning? Or what would Jesus say about me sleeping with my boyfriend? What would he say about that? What would he say about that? What would Jesus have me do with my Christmas bonus? See, areas of our life where we don't want 
Jesus to come into. Jesus saying, no, 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 foundational relationship, meaning I'm going to be part of every decision that you make, no matter how inconsequential it might seem. So I love sports, right? And if I want to get Sports Illustrated, it's not a really high subscription rate. It's, like, it's about $85 a year. It seems inconsequential if you put that, you know, in, in a monthly form. It's like, hey, just a few bucks are coming out of our bank account every single month. But I want to involve my wife, Hannah, in that decision. I want to involve her in that decision because we are walking through life together. And that relationship to me, the relationship with my wife, is, is very important. I want to bring her into every single decision that I make, even the small ones. That is positively what Jesus is calling us to do here, to make him the reference point for every decision that we make in life. But negatively, it means this. It means you cannot say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but right now I have to focus on my career. Yeah, Jesus following you, making you foundational. I want to do that, but right now is just not a good time. After I get settled, then I'll make you foundational. Or, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I'm in my 20s and I want to have the college experience. Or, yes, Jesus, I definitely want to bring you into my finances, but don't you realize I have a lot of student debt that I'm carrying? So Jesus says, remember, verse 26, he says, it's about our life and even his own life. If we're not willing to hate even our own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think maybe the one of the greatest summaries in quote form comes from Abraham Kuyper. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole walk of our human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign Lord of over all, does not say mine. See, Jesus wants every detail of your life, whether that's your work, your finances, your sexuality, your relationships, your habits, and your recreation. This is the first shocking statement, but Jesus even builds on it. Verse 27. Verse 27, he builds on it and says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Because those who were following Jesus for the first time, they would have realized that Jesus is, what he's doing here is he's teasing out the implications of the first verse, verse 26. And what he's saying is, pick up your cross. The crowd would have known what that meant. The cross was a form of capital punishment. It was a form of Roman execution of prisoners. So it's like Jesus, if he were to come to us today, it's the equivalent of him saying, if you do not take your life as you know it now, your ambitions, your goals, your aspirations, what you think will bring you most happiness and joy in life, every part of your life as you know it, and if you do not take those things and put a lethal injection needle into them, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me because it costs you your life, your life as you know it. That's why, you know, I'm, here's the thing. It's dying to your old way of life, life on your own terms, and embracing life as Jesus offers it to us. That's why, you know, I'm always, a, I'm always a little bit skeptical when I hear somebody say, and I used to hear this a lot when I lived in Nashville, but I'm always a little bit skeptical when I hear people say, yeah, I know about, I know about Christianity, and my dad was a Presbyterian, and, you know, my mom, she was a Methodist, and I went to church, and we read the Bible sometimes, and we prayed as a family at the dinner table, and, and I know what it's about, but it, it's just not for me. And the reason I'm a little bit skeptical of that is because when you dig a little deeper, really what I think the subtext is, is yeah, Christianity is a lot like other religions, but Jesus is just the central figure. Like all religions are, you know, generally the same. They want us to love people. They want to make the world a better place. And Jesus is just the central teacher that gives that message. And that's what makes Christianity distinct. But 
if what Jesus is saying here is true, then it is radically different from other forms of religion. Because remember, religion says this, and maybe, maybe this is the reason you're here this morning. See, maybe, maybe you're here this morning because what religion says is, okay, I'm going to give a little bit, and as a result, I'm going to get a little bit. Okay, God, I'm going to make a bargain. I'm going to give you a little bit of my time. I'm going to give you a little bit of my money. I might even give you a little bit of my comfort and my efforts. And as a result, I expect to get certain things. I am going to get some comfort. I'm going to get some peace. I'm going to get some joy with God. That's what religion says. Religion says you're basically a good person. And what you need is a little extra in your life to supplement your life. And Jesus can do that for you. That's what religion says. But if what Jesus is saying here is true, Jesus is saying, wait, no, no, no. You are not okay. You are not basically a good person. In fact, the life that you're living right now, while it may seem harmless, is actually killing you. The life that you're living apart from me is spiritual death that will lead ultimately to eternal separation from God and that form of death. So what Jesus is saying is, I did not come to make good people who make mistakes a little bit better. He came to say, I am making people who are walking in deadness and I'm coming to make them alive by following me. Jesus wants to make you alive. He wants to spiritually awaken you. Put a smelling salt under your nose so that you'll finally get it. He's saying, crowds, crowds, do you want to follow me? I am not here to offer good advice to improve your life. Following me will cost you your life. I am going to Jerusalem to die, and following me to Jerusalem will mean you will put to death your old life as you have seen it and find new life in me instead. And I think nobody puts this better than C.S. Lewis. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought that you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified, not to make us decent people a little bit better, but Jesus is going to the cross because he's going to sacrifice his perfect life to give us his divine, eternal life. And so Jesus says, in order to give you that, there needs to be a radical break. There needs to be a radical break. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem and that's why I'm going to the cross to forgive you of your sins so that I, by my spirit, can come and live inside you, make my home inside you and begin to make you more like me to exchange my life for yours. But he says there is a cost in following me. Remember, these are not conditions to following Jesus. Jesus is not saying you have to hate your father and mother and then you can follow me. You have to die to your old life and then you can follow me. No, Jesus is saying this is the result of following him saying this is the result of following him, that this is the cost. It will cost you your life. If you follow me, it means your life as you know it will look like the cross. Your old desires, you will die to him. Your old ambitions, you will die to him. Your old aspirations, you will, die, you will die to him. But then Jesus pivots and he gives us the parables, right? The two shocking parables. And these parables begin 
in verse 30, or sorry, verse 28. And Jesus says this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, Jesus, in the past two weeks, we've seen that he often told these narrative parables, right? These were narrative stories. Remember, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And he said last week, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? So these are narratives. They're stories, right? But parables can often be interrogations, and that's what Jesus is doing. He's interrogating us. He's asking us to answer a question. He's looking to the crowds and saying, hey, you have to answer this question, okay? Listen, listen to this question. That's why he says, which of you? Meaning, hey, think really quick. Which of you would do this? So what does Jesus want to ask us here in this parable? Well, he wants to ask us in this first parable, what he's, what he's asking us to think about is to ask ourselves, is wouldn't it be foolish if someone started building a tower but didn't first sit down and estimate the cost? Wouldn't that be foolish? And, and the implied answer is yes. Yeah, that'd be extremely foolish. That would, that would probably make a person be mocked. Did you hear what Joe did? Right? And the purpose of this parable, what Jesus wants us to reflect on is this. Just as it is foolish for someone to set out to build a tower and disregard the actual cost, to say, okay, I got $100,000 in my bank account here and it probably costs like $250,000, but, but I'm not going to really count the cost of what it'll actually be to build it. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to start building it anyway. Jesus is saying, just as that would be foolish to do that, he's saying, so too it is foolish to think that you can follow him, be his disciple, and not actually think that it will cost you your life. So this is key. Jesus is saying the very, this is a very foolish and dangerous way of thinking. It's a way of saying, Jesus, I want everything that you have to offer. I want everything you have to offer. I want forgiveness of sins. I want a relationship with you, peace with you. I want heaven. I want all the benefits you offer, but... Jesus, here is the line in the sand and please do never cross it. That's the kind of thinking that Jesus is saying, isn't that foolish? Isn't that a foolish way to think? It's a way of saying, Jesus, I want what you have, but Jesus, I'm not gonna change my views on human sexuality or, or what I should do with my money or, or how I should raise my kids. I want all of those things, Jesus, but not if it means I have to quit my job or give up a paycheck or forfeit on a relationship. Barbara Boyd, uh, I heard this illustration from a pastor named Tim Keller. He talks about uh, this woman, Barbara Boyd, who was really influential on his life. And she gave two illustrations of this. One is, she said, I'm Barbara Boyd. And it would be really weird if somebody said to me, as I was standing at their door, come on in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd. That'd be really interesting. And that'd be really weird because I'm, I'm Barbara Boyd. I'm all Barbara and all Boyd. I can't you know, I can't chop myself in half and the top half's Barbara and the bottom half's Boyd and I like roll myself in as Barbara. I can't do that. I have to walk in and the bottom half's Boyd and I'm fully Barbara, fully Boyd. So you must have all of me. You can't just have Barbara come in. You must have all of me. You must have Barbara Boyd. And she said to say, Jesus, I will follow you. Forgive my sins, answer my prayers, but don't expect me to do that or don't expect me to believe that. Jesus, I want to follow you as savior but I am going to remain the master and Lord of my own life. What Jesus is saying here is, you can't follow me at all then. I'm all Savior and all Lord and Master 
of your life. You can't have me just as Savior. You can't have just the benefits of a relationship with me and not have the lordship that I offer. Those who follow me don't just receive the benefits of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the assurance of Jesus, but they receive the cross-shaped life of Jesus. And so Jesus knew in the crowd, he knew that there were plenty of people who thought this way. And, And they might not have said it out loud, right? They probably didn't say it out loud, but functionally Jesus knew that's how they were acting. And he's saying, that is foolish. You are like a guy building a tower and you know that you don't have insufficient funds, but you're still gonna do it anyway. And it's just gonna end in the foundation being built and you not actually completing the project because you have to have all of me. And Jesus knows the same thing is true here this morning, that there are many of us in here that we wanna follow Jesus with the spiritual part of us, but the bodily life to life, day to day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week part of us, we don't wanna submit to Jesus. We wanna draw a line in the sand and say, Jesus, I want you as savior, but stay out Lord. And what Barbara Boyd was saying is that's impossible. That's an impossibility. You can't have that. Barbara Boyd, she gave one more illustration and she said, okay, the thickness of this paper, if that represented, the thickness of this paper right here, if that represented the distance between the earth and the sun, then the galaxy as we know it, the galaxy that we live in, would be a stack of papers, its diameter would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And then she said, in our galaxy, our galaxy is actually just, the the part that we can see is just a speck of dust in the universe that we can see. And then she said, and part of that universe, just a fraction of all that universe is the galaxy that we live in. And so what she says is, if if you so casually say that Jesus is the son of God and assent to that truth, and that that same son of God holds this universe together by the word of his power, is this the kind of person you say to, come into my life, will you please be my personal assistant? That wouldn't be the kind of reaction you'd say to somebody who created all this and has that much power. To want to come to Jesus and follow Jesus without submitting your entire life and accepting him as Lord and accepting his command on all of your life, Jesus is saying is foolish. It's like a person building a tower with only half the funds to do so and he goes and does it anyway. So Jesus says, there's a cost and the cost is not up for negotiation. I'm going to give my perfect sinless life as a payment for your sins so that you might have eternal life. It cost me my life and now I'm asking you to entrust your life to me. That's the exchange. And Jesus says, there's no negotiation on that. There's no negotiation. And at the end of the day, that's what it means to have faith in Jesus, right? Faith is believing in certain truths about Jesus. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to believe certain truths about him, but ultimately you have to trust him. That's an essential part of faith. I can know intellectually that this stool can hold up a human being. And I can believe that if I sit on it, it will hold me up. But in order to actually trust that stool and have actual faith in that stool, I'm gonna have to ultimately sit down in it. And Jesus is saying the same thing. If you really have faith in me, you will trust your life to me. And you can trust your life to me because I sacrificed my life for yours. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to go anywhere that he hasn't gone first. He says, your life is going to look like the cross. You are gonna die to your old life, but I have gone there first to pay the penalty for your sins. And Jesus builds on this parable as well. It is the last parable and it challenges us further. This is verse 31. 
He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And now we've been in parables, right, for three weeks now, and I've kind of resisted giving a definition of parables until now. And I did so because I kind of wanted to save it for this point, this point right here. Okay, and now there are many definitions of parables, probably as many definitions as there are definers. But here's my favorite one. It comes from a scholar named C.H. Dodd. He says, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving our minds in sufficient doubt as to its precise application in order to tease it into active thought. And that's the key phrase, right? That tease, to tease it into active thought. Because on first read of that parable that we just read, Jesus' second parable, it sounds like Jesus is saying the same thing as the first, right? Sit down, count the cost. If you can't do it, do something about it or don't do something about it. But notice, I want you to tease out this thought that Jesus is trying to get us to tease out this morning. Notice something. What is different about the second parable compared to the first parable? Notice, in the first parable, you can remain neutral. You can remain neutral in the first parable, right? You can choose to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. You can count the cost of building a tower and you can say, you know what? It costs 250K. I don't have it. I'm going to take my 100K. I'm going to go home. You can remain neutral. Say, I'm just going to choose to not do anything about it. But in this parable, the second parable, notice the king, right? The king knows there are 20,000 troops marching their way toward my kingdom right now. There are only two options. I can fight with my 10,000 troops or I can send for terms of peace while he's still a great way off. But there's one thing he certainly cannot do and that is nothing. He cannot remain neutral, can he? Because if he does not act, if he remains neutral, if he doesn't do anything, it will cost him his life. He will fight the other king now or he will wait and do nothing and that king will finally fight him when he's at his doorstep. So Jesus is trying to tease out this thought. He's trying to get you to think. You cannot be neutral in this situation. Jesus we like to think, you know, okay, I can follow Jesus or I can rebel against Jesus or I can remain neutral. Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not an option. That's not an option. Neutrality will cost you your life. Maybe not now, but in the end it will because a, a, a foreign enemy is coming. So Jesus is saying, you cannot remain neutral. And that's why I think Soren Kierkegaard puts it perfectly. He says, when it comes to, er, he says, the purpose of the parables is to deceive you into the truth. Jesus wants to deceive you into this truth that, that we are on the spotlight here, that we have to make a choice. As Tim Keller put it, I've, I've shared this quote before, when it comes to Jesus, either you will have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The only thing you cannot say is what an interesting guy. You can't. You cannot say that. You cannot remain neutral. Jesus wants you to tease out this thought and think about this. One commentator put it this way. I think he put it perfectly. In the first parable, Jesus says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to follow me. In the second parable, he says, sit down and reckon whether you can afford to refuse following me. See, that's the question that Jesus wants you to consider can you afford not to follow him? After all, what's, what's at stake? In, in the first parable, what's at stake is you look foolish. Okay, I built a tower, didn't finish it. 
Maybe I got like put on Instagram and everybody saw it and they laughed at me for a little while. I can get over that. But in the second parable, what's at stake? What's at stake is, according to Jesus, your life. Your life's at stake. Can you afford not to follow Jesus? That's what he wants you to consider this morning. You are the king. You are the king. Will you send for terms of peace while Jesus is still a far way off? Jesus says he will return and you will either war against him now or war against him later or you will make peace with him. And the way that you make that peace is by embracing his sacrifice on the cross. That's how you embrace that peace. Jesus is saying, that, but you have to decide. There's no neutrality. And so Jesus concludes. He puts it in those very terms. Verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, you will renounce your life, follow Jesus and be his disciple and inherit eternal life at the expense of your best life now or, or you will hold on to your life as you know it now and you will remain neutral and lose eternal life in order to have your best life now. So the question Jesus would have you ask is, can you afford it? Can you afford not to follow him? Can you afford to not listen to his commands right now? I'm just going to close with this story. It's kind of a humorous story. It's a story of a guy. He is going out to his car and he pulls out his car keys and it's an unassuming night. You know, nobody's around and he walks up to his car. He puts the keys in the car door and all of a sudden he hears footsteps pattering behind him and he's shocked. So he turns around, it's dark in the middle of the night and there's a man with a mask and he's pointing a gun at him and he says, hey, your wallet or your life. And he, he's kind of flabbergasted. He's taken aback and, you know, the guy doesn't respond for some time. So finally the, the thief is like, hey, I'm being serious. Your money or your life, your wallet or your life. And he says, I know, I know. Hold on, I'm thinking about it. Okay, I'm thinking about it. And the, the point is this. Jesus says what we already intuitively know. If you hold on to life as you know it right now, if you hold on to your money as your sense of security in life, if you hold on to your reputation as the thing that brings you well-being, if you hold on to success as the thing that's going to validate your life, if you hold on to status, then it will cost you your life. If you hold on to it, it will cost you your life. We know that intuitively, but what Jesus is saying, now you have to choose. There is no neutral position. See, we know intellectually and experientially that life on our own terms never fulfills and satisfies, but Jesus is putting it to us to say, can you afford otherwise? If you hold on and trying to keep life as you know it, then it will kill you. It will cost you your life. It will strangle out every ounce of spiritual life in you. He or she who renounces all that they have and follow Jesus will be his disciple and have eternal life. And the question Jesus wants to ask you is, can you afford not to embrace that message today? Jesus is saying, put your trust in him. Put your life in his hands. Follow him because he came and forsook it all. He forsook everything he knew to come and be born in human flesh, to live a perfect life and to die on your behalf. Can you afford not to embrace a savior that would go to those great lengths to save you? It'd be foolish. It'd be foolish not to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you shock us. Jesus, I pray that you would humble hearts, that you would humble my heart. 
to realize that life on my own terms and life on our own terms never satisfies. And that the only way to find satisfaction and to embrace life as you would have us to live is and to embrace, to embrace you. The one who came, was born of a virgin, lived the life we could not live, and died the death we deserve to die. I pray for faith this morning, God. I pray for those who maybe are hearing this message and they feel a stirring to faith. I pray that they would place their faith in you. And I pray that they would let somebody that they came know that they've done that or they would come and speak and be prayed for and receive the gift of eternal life. And God, I pray for those who maybe we've heard this message so many times, but we've become callous to it or have been hardened to it. I pray that you would soften us and help us realize that you indeed are good, that your plans for us are good and that you have eternal life stored up for us. If we will just let go of those things we know we will never satisfy. And we ask this in your name, by the power of your spirit, King Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen.